can't wait to see what the testimonies are going to be at the end of this next year uh, as we kind of all go through this together. It's just going to be astounding. The staff, Jared McKenna, does a great job with those videos. Uh, turn to the back of your bulletin. I just want to make sure that you're aware of this. The staff want to make sure that everybody's on the same page uh, with where we are. Tonight, we have a carol sing with the Cherub Choir. That's at 6.30. So if you are, just want uh, an overload of cuteness, uh, you come to that. You're, you're just going to be overwhelmed with the cuteness of the Cherub. I mean, it's so awesome to watch them sing and to be there and be led and worship by them. Next week, Sunday the 12th, is the Christmas celebration with choir and orchestra. Uh, as Clark, Clark Griswold would say, that's the big one. That's the big one. And we're doing it twice this year, once at 4.30 and once at 6.30, an hour long. Invite friends, invite neighbors to that. Uh, we'll read through the gospel story with an orchestra, with choir. It's a phenomenal night. Cookies and Carols are December 19th. Uh, that's the time for us just to get back together and uh, sing all the songs that we haven't got a chance to sing, have a cookie bake-off. Uh, if you want to play, I'm maybe overstepping my bounds here a little bit, but if you're a musician and you want to play, it's kind of a whoever wants to get up there and play, I'm sure Trevor and Jared would love to have you. And then Christmas Eve, uh, again, three services, 4.35 and 6.30. So just don't hesitate to invite friends, to invite neighbors, to invite people that are sad, the people that don't know uh, the Lord. Don't hesitate. Your non-Christian neighbors actually expect to be invited to church during Christmas. And it's a little bit weird when you don't invite them because they're expecting it. They might not come, but they're kind of expecting to at least be invited. So plenty of things for people to come to for an entry-level place in the church. Let me pray, and then we'll jump right into this scripture. Father, it is so good to give thanks to you and to sing praise to you. And we've done that already this morning, and we pray that we would do that more and more. To sing of your uh, steadfast love in the morning and at night when we put our heads on our beds to speak of your faithfulness to us. You uh, have made us with the work of your hands. And so, Father, we want to praise you. We want to worship you. We want to repent where we need to repent and trust you and follow you. And we understand that there's so many people in this world that don't get the chance to worship anything that's worthy of their worship. We know that so many people can be foolish and go through life and never lift up their eyes to the hills to see where their help comes from. Never seek a God. Never ask the hard questions. But Father, you have lifted us up. You have made us a people that know you. And what you desire for us is to worship you, to be uh, righteous men and women and kids, trusting in your word like we're planted uh, like trees by the streams. Father, we want to bear fruit for you. Uh, we want to be a people that not only love you and attend church, we want to bear gospel, spirit, fruit. We want to be faithful, loving, kind, generous, gracious. We want to reflect who you are and your character to us. We want to reflect that because we're being sanctified and made more and more in your image. 
So, Father, prepare us for that. Prepare us for whatever would come our way in this life. But more than that, prepare us for you returning. Prepare us for what you're going to do in the second advent. Prepare us to meet you. And until that day, as long as we have breath, may we worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I love what the Advent season does in that it holds a number of things together. For example, all throughout this month, you'll see the themes of, say, darkness and light. Uh, You'll see the themes of pain. It's painful to give birth to a child. And joy. Uh, You'll see longing and you'll see fulfillment. All of these themes that are seemingly opposite are held together during that Advent season. You can see them in our songs. We sing songs that are very, at times, morose, are they not? Uh, In the bleak midwinter, we sing that song. Uh, We sing the song of the Coventry Carol, or at least you can listen to it. It's about the slaughter of the innocent children. (laughs) You can go online, you can listen to uh, really bone-chilling uh, replications of that song that talks about slaughtering kids because that's part of Advent too. Jesus was born, but kids died in the process of that. Uh, we sing the song, or at least you listen to it, Elephant's Cheryl, uh, Louis Armstrong, Baby, It's Cold Outside. That, uh, that's not a great song. I mean, it's basically about a, a boyfriend plying his girlfriend with liquor so she'll spend the night. That's what it's about. And we, we listen to that. Uh, and we, we listened to the song, A Grandmother Got Ran Over by the Reindeer. <laughs> what are we doing, people? Have you read the lyrics to that? Well, you're about to. Let me just read you one verse from that. It's amazing. I mean, the whole thing is worth it. You know, the second verse talks about grandfather. He's doing really well. He's just watching football. He's not bothered at all by his wife getting run over. But the first verse, grandma got ran over by a reindeer walking home from Christmas Eve. You can say there's no such thing as Santa, but me and grandpa, we believe we found her Christmas morning at the scene of the attack. She had hoof prints on her forehead and incriminating hoof marks on her back. What are we doing? (laughs) We see all those songs, right? Those songs of pain, those songs of bleak midwinter, those songs of longing. And then we also sing joy to the world and hark the herald angels sing. And I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. All the songs on the other side, because that's what Advent does. Advent holds all of those things together. Advent gives us permission. You probably don't think of it this way, but Advent gives us permission to be sad. It gives us permission to long. It gives us permission because we're going in darkness and going into continual darkness until the light of Christ appears. And what Advent does is it's supposed to create that longing, that sadness, that longing, along with the joy and the hope, the darkness of the world, and then the star appears, leads people to a Savior. All of that is together in Advent. Fleming Rutledge says it this way, the authenticity Hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Instead of pointing to someone else's sin, we confess our own. In our sins, we have been a long time, it says in Isaiah. Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. And then it tells us, we're not alone. Emmanuel, God is with us. And so here's the announcement. 
Here's the Advent announcement I want to make. Enlarge your hearts. Feel more of the world's pain, more of the world's suffering. Rage against the death. Rage against the culture. Rage against the cancer. Rage against all the things that you need to rage against, which is not good and pure. And long for Christ's return. And then let your heart be filled with hope and joy because Christ has come and Christ is coming again. And here's the announcement. Your king is coming. Behold, your king will come again. He has proved to us he will come the first time. He's already done that. And Advent makes us long for the second coming of the king. And what's he coming with? He's coming with reward. He's coming with treasure. He's coming with a crown. He's coming with inheritance. He's coming with all of these gifts to reward you who have been faithful on this side of the Jordan. Revelation 22 says this. I don't know if these made it to the screen. If they did make it to the screen. Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon and I am bringing my recompense with me. Meaning I'm going to bring my reparations with me. I'm going to bring reward. I'm going to repay everything that you've lost in this life. I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There's 485 verses in the Bible that talk about God coming with treasure, with inheritance, with reward, or with gifts. And I've looked up every one of them for you. Every one of them. And I was overwhelmed because I've always kind of rejected this because of the prosperity gospel. You know, we don't want to think that we get rewarded for anything. I've kind of rejected this because of, quite frankly, churches like Joel Osteen. I probably shouldn't name names. But when you're working on a toilet and you find a half a million dollars hidden in the wall, we've got a problem. There's other things going on. By the way, if you're hiding money here, please let us know. We, we would... We would like to do something with that sooner rather than later, but we are repairing every toilet on campus just to see if there's anything there. I've always rejected it as you have, but if you look through, and we're going to talk about this the next couple uh, weeks, if you look through even the Sermon on the Mount, the theme in the Sermon on the Mount is constantly, I will reward you. I'm coming back and I will reward you. I have a treasure for you. I have an inheritance for you. I'm going to pay back everything you've lost. Everything you give up in this life is going to be nothing compared with the riches that come with Christ. And so four points very quickly. Number one is this treasure forces the issue. Treasure forces the issue. Luke chapter 12 is a pretty phenomenal text. Jesus is in the middle of preaching and teaching on this. And then verse 13, somebody in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's in the middle of this teaching, this wonderful teaching he's doing. And then right in the middle of that, somebody from the crowd speaks up, hey, Jesus, could you come over here and tell my brother to divide the inheritance? He's the older brother, apparently, and so he would have gotten to all the inheritance. But this guy, who would have been the younger brother, thinks that he should get something from that. It should be divided. It's not equitable. And so could you, Jesus, step in here and tell my brother that he should divide this estate with me? Just small-minded thinking. No large vision about what God might be doing or why he's there at all. And without a large vision, you'll have large arguments about small things. That's the way it works. 
That's the way it works in culture right now, right? Without a large vision for what God's doing, we're going to have increasingly large arguments about very small things. Like, I need some money for my brother. He hasn't divided the inheritance with me. Like toddlers that have trust funds arguing over toys from the Dollar Tree. I mean, it's that ridiculous. (laughs) You're worth $20 million and you're arguing over a toy that you bought from the Dollar Tree. You know, it's, it's that absurd. There's no large vision. Divide the inheritance with me. And look how Jesus responds. Verse 14. He said, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, I am not interested in getting involved with all these petty decisions, all these like worldly things that you're talking about. And then he goes on in verse 15 and he says, take care, be on your guard against covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Treasure forces the issue. Here's what Jesus says. I am coming with this treasure that you cannot basically imagine. I'm coming with all of these gifts. I'm coming with all of this reward. Why would you ever give any time or attention to all of this pettiness? And the question is, can we grab that same perspective? Or are we getting trapped with the abundance of things? With the covetousness of wanting something more, something else. It, it might be just time that you would need to actually repent and say, no, I, I have for years now just given myself completely to the earthly pleasures of this life, life never wanting to sacrifice anything for Christ Not having any big picture of what might be going on, but just living for the here and now. But the second point is this. Treasures allow a joyful sacrifice. Jesus does what he typically does in chapter 12. After he gives them instruction, he probably sees that they're not quite getting it. So he tells them a parable. A para alongside balo to throw. A parable is just something that's thrown alongside, like a story that's thrown alongside to kind of season the teaching. And here's what he says. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. Now, no problem there. A lot of people make a lot of money. Not a problem. It's not a problem. He bought a field. uh, He got the right crops. Everything worked out. It was really produced. He could sell it in the market. That's all great. No problem. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. His barns were most likely sufficient already. But the thought came to his mind, why, if, if I could just build larger ones, then I don't have to worry as much. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. Look at verse 19. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And basically, he's doing self-therapy. I'll I'll then say to myself, now it's got to be enough, right? Why are you still anxious, soul? Soul, now you can relax. Soul, now you can chill out a little bit. Soul, now you can actually enjoy your family. Soul, now you can finally, you know, be at peace with yourself. I'll, I'll say that to myself, and maybe this time it will work. Trying to convince himself that this world, we can finally live at peace without the Lord. Verse 20. But God said to him, fool, 
This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, when God calls him a fool, he's not being nefarious. He's not being capricious. Uh, he's, he's not being mean. Uh, think of it this way. God's trying to tell you, you're not giving anything up to follow me. You actually don't have to give anything up to follow me. I'm going to reward you and repay you for everything that you think you lost in this life. What God's trying to do at this moment is say, quit investing in things that don't matter. He's trying to save you from a bad investment. <laughs> He's trying to keep you from throwing your money after something which is actually just going to bring more anxiety. Martin Luther says it this way. He says, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. But whatever I placed in God's hands, I still possess. And then he says in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And we know from the Bible, treasure in heaven, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's this beautiful picture of when you realize that God has the inheritance, which we'll talk about next week, the reward, which we'll talk about the week after, the treasure already established. God has all of those things, all of the gifts waiting for you then you're free to be sacrificial and you're free to be rich towards God. You know, these uh, tithing boxes on the sides, I, I love, we got to do this uh, because of COVID. But I've wanted to put tithing boxes on the side and not place, uh, pass the plates for years. Uh, COVID allowed us to do a few things without any debate and this was one of them. Because this is actually more of the biblical model. The boxes in Old Testament worship were on the outside before you enter in. And passing the plates is a revivalistic way that we would do that to raise money. But it's clearly, historically, that only came about because of the revivals. You know, you'd have a big crowd, though. we got to pay the itinerant preacher. Let's pass some plates. That's how it came about. But biblically, the boxes were always on the entrance to the table. The fear, though, is this. Because everything is done electronically now, we don't ever think about giving. And we don't ever think about it as an act of worship. We think about it just raising funds. But these boxes are representing an act of worship. I give online. Elizabeth and I give everything online. And I try to do this uh, every week. When I come into the room, I'll just tap the box. I'll touch it like a football player will touch something before they run out and play just to remind myself this is worship. That, that automatic draw that, I, that came out of my bank account, I'm, I'm doing this to be rich to God because he owns everything anyway. And so I walk over and, and tap the box. And if you have young kids, you got to teach them how to tithe, not because the church needs money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He always provides because it's worship. Because we're saying to God himself, I trust you with everything that you've given me. And I know my treasure's in heaven. And so I can be free and I can be rich towards you here on earth. It's worship. And so take your kids over there and give them to put a $20 bill in it. Teach them to trust the Lord in that way. Because so often we're not rich towards God. Did you see that meme? I love this meme. It has, memes are so great for preachers. 
They're like the best things ever. Uh, it was the three wise men all around baby Jesus. And all the three wise men are there with gold, frankincense, and more. And, and one of the wise men, in the meme, one of the wise men says, Now, Jesus, just so you know, these gifts are both for your birthday and Christmas. <laughs> oh. That one, that one got me. Because we've all done that with our kids, haven't we? We've all given a gift. You're like, this is too much, so this counts for both. You know, we've all, we've all done that. You just see, oh, they're not rich towards Jesus. These are both for your Christmas and for your birth. I'm going to keep repeating it because I think it's funny. Or we can live living sacrifices. Here, if it's not money, let me ask you this question. How can you be rich to God in some other way? Over Advent, what could you do to cause you to trust him more? Maybe it's not giving. Maybe it's evangelism. But maybe there's something you could do that would be rich in your display towards God. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's spending a day away. Maybe it is visiting somebody that you haven't visited. Maybe it's sharing your faith with somebody. But put, put yourself in a place where you're having to trust the Lord and be rich to him. And he goes on to say, here's the third point. Treasure keeps you from anxiety and gives you endurance. Verse 22, he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you'll eat nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life if then you're not able to do as small as a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I'm going to stop right there and talk about anxiety first. Look, if you really, really believe that you have treasure in heaven, if you really believe, and I don't know if we are all there yet, that God will reward us for everything we've done and everything we've lost, that God desires to give you good gifts, that God has an inheritance waiting you for, it, for you in heaven and it is eternal. If you really believe that, truly, then you don't have to be anxious about the things of this world. You just don't. You don't have to spin and toil. Now look, each generation has their blind spots. I can point out pretty easy, because now it's historical, the blind spots of the greatest generation. They were the greatest generation, but they had their blind spots. I can point out pretty easily the, the blind spots of the baby boomers. We got enough historical data now, it's pretty clear. But my generation, you know what the blind spots of my generation are? It's becoming clear. One is absolutely no boundaries for social media that completely caught us off kilter. And we, have, we had no idea how they handle it and have done an awful job with it. Horrible. And you know what that's produced? An insanely high level of anxiety. 
Because now, it's not only do I have clothes, but it's do I have the right clothes? Do, do I have the right picture? Do I have all of these things? And every study out there, and there are plenty of them, every study has said uh, letting that run rampant in our society without causing anybody to kind of question it for the first 10 years in my generation being more addicted to Facebook and not even helping our kids understand what to do has just created insanely high levels of anxiety toiling and worrying and spinning over images that we see 24-7 matter of fact attorney generals of five different states has gathered together to sue uh, Meadow, which is formerly Facebook. And here's what they said. They have failed to protect young people on its platforms and instead chose to ignore or in some cases double down on known manipulations that pose a real threat to physical and mental health. Actually, they have exploited children for the interest of profit. They bought all in to toil about these things, worry about these things. By the way, my, my generation has other blind spots. The other one would be not a real uh, sober lifestyle. And I don't mean that just by way of alcohol. I mean just living with integrity and holiness and pornography being the front runner of that problem too. I, I could go on about my generation, what we let get out of control. But back to anxiety we know it's in insanely high levels. How are you going to get out of that? You can put down your phone, but unless you have a bigger picture for what God's doing and how God's going to reward you, it will never fully go away. Bonhoeffer says it this way. He says, earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us to thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety, yet all the time they're the very source of anxiety. But the gospel is, how much more valuable are you to God than the birds? And look at the creation, how God provides for his creatures. How much more valuable are you? Do you not think your God is going to provide for you? Do you not think he's going to care for you? Do you not think he weeps over you when you're hurting or sad? He does. That's the Father's heart for you. Treasure keeps you from anxiety, knowing your treasures in heaven, but it also gives you endurance. Look at verse 28. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? It takes faith. And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Do you, when you read scripture, do you see the personal heart of God for you? This is not some removed God who's not interested in you. Uh, who just, you know, I paid for all your sins. Let's see how you work it out. No, the Father knows that you need them. He knows what you need more than you know it. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. It gives you endurance to know that's where your treasure is. If you think the stop line is getting to retirement, then you're going to quit running. If you think the stop line is just getting married, then you're going to quit running. If the end line is being with the Lord and that's where your treasure is, you're going to keep striving until you get to that place with him. And it makes you young to know you have a gift, that you have a treasure in heaven waiting for you. It makes you young. I read this quote at the funeral 
Trap Hart's funeral this past week. And I just love it. I haven't read it for a long time, but I've read it to you before. But it fits with this text perfectly. Uh, Again, Chesterton. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again and again and again till he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not as strong enough to exalt in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that he makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. He's just never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Maybe part of Christmas and Advent season for us would, would be this. We become young again. We become young again because we know we have a Father who's longing to give us good gifts. The best part of Christmas is not having high school students. You know, because now we're into clothes and gift cards and stuff like that. The best part of Christmas is having five-year-olds, right? Four-year-olds. Watching them come down. Watching them open gifts. Watching from a father's eyes. Watching them, you know, with all the joy and all the excitement. And maybe Advent will make you like a four- or five-year-old again. Awed by the wonder of who our God is and what he has in store for you and what he has prepared for you. Then we can seek the kingdom, like it says in verse 31, because we need to be people that live more for his kingdom than ours. I do want to give you this one quote because it's so worth it. Adoniram Judson, he understood what it said in verse 31, to seek first the kingdom of God. And he wanted to marry his wife, Anne, but he needed permission from her father. But he wasn't close to her father, so he wrote her father a letter asking for permission to marry his daughter, Anne, because he was trying to seek first the kingdom of God. And here is what he says in the letter. Imagine being a dad and getting this. I now have to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. They were going to go to India to depart from her early next spring and to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, and to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps even a very violent death. Can you, can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home, who died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and for the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter, not in this world again, but in the world of glory, with a crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which each will rebound from her Savior from heavens above and through all means from eternal woe and despair? Can you let go of your daughter for the rest of your life? to go to India with me 
and never see again because we're going to seek first the kingdom. And Anne did die. And they left behind 4,000 churches and roughly a half a million followers in Burma because one couple was willing to go and seek first the kingdom. So verse 32, fear not, little flock. Just look at verse 32. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Have you let that one sink in, how good God is to you and what he wants to do for you and what he's already done? Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags, and don't grow old for a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches or moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is your Father's joy. Think of the Heavenly Father and think of His joy it was to give up His Son for you. And then think of the joy that your heavenly father is going to have like a father of a toddler at Christmas in giving gifts to your kids. So your heavenly father, it's his pleasure to give you the kingdom to let you rule and reign with Christ himself in the new heavens and the new earth so you can let go of the things of this world. Look, wouldn't... If Jeff Bezos came to your house, or pick your favorite billionaire, there's plenty of them. If Jeff Bezos came to your house and and leaving, he said, I left a $10 million check somewhere in here for you to find it. Wouldn't you cancel your plans for the next day? Wouldn't you live life a little differently? You're not going to sit down and watch Yellowstone that night. You're going to go through every book in the house, right? If God says, I have a treasure and a reward waiting for you that you're not going to believe, aren't you going to live life a little bit differently? Close with this quote from Robert Weber, come right to communion. The spirituality of Advent calls us to start our journey in the expectation of the second coming of Christ. The end of time is the period in history when the work of Christ will be consummated, when the powers of evil will be put away forever, when the earth will be restored to the golden age described by Isaiah and St. John. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Father, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, we pray. And as we take communion, it's just a a foretaste of what you're going to do in the new heavens and the new earth. But may this appetizer of your grace, may this remind us of the feast that is ours in Christ. May we be less anxious and more joyful. May we be joyfully sacrificial, not sacrificial because we have to be, but joyfully so because we can be rich towards you. Father, would you make us a people where our heart's orientation is based on our treasure's location? And would you make us young again in the faith? Would you make us kids again this Advent season? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
If you'll take the communion prayer, God of all good.